Well, the past few weeks, we talked about um, being people after God's own heart. We've been looking at that, uh, and we talked a lot about uh, how God, really all he wants is our heart. How when we talk about obedience, we talk about surrender, whether we're talking about giving or serving, that what God is really after is our heart. And so what I want to do this morning, and I want to just take a little bit of time, and I want to I want to set the stage. I want to talk about the scripture. I want to introduce the sermon series, and it will be a series. I won't be here next week. Pastor Jamie's going to be preaching. But we're going to talk a little bit about this, and then when I, when I come back in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll go deeper in it. But here, here's what I want you to do. I would encourage you in the coming weeks, because I think a lot of times, if you're like me, maybe you know your devotion or your scripture time is, is like another thing you've got to get done right? You want to get it done, and you know, so you kind of get it, and you check it off the list. But here's what I want to encourage each of us to do. Because, you know, we come here, we're gathered together, and, and I, I got nothing. I got nothing for you, right? The only power here is the power of the Word, the Spirit of God, that same Spirit that can change anybody's life here in this place. And so what I want you to do, 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11, 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11. And that's what we're going to be, that's the main text we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. And what I want you to do this in your devotion time or whatever, it, it's, a short, it's a short section, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 through 21. And here's what I want you to do. First, I want you to pray. Because, you know, sometimes if you're like me, you know, you've got a million things in your mind. And I just want you to find that quiet time and just pray and ask the Lord to clear your mind. You know, we got to create space to hear that still small voice. And so the first thing I would encourage you, just slow down. Find a quiet place and pray. Ask God to speak to your spirit, to, to show you maybe some things. And then read through the scripture. Just read it and then meditate on it. You know, because a lot of times I think we, we read through scriptures and we read through them instead of reading them. And so I'm going to read this text and then we're going to, we're going to unpack some of it together. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse, verse 11. Paul writes, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. And then this is the title of the message this morning. For Christ's love compels us. Verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all and that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And then in verse 17, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that's one of those scriptures we all remember, right? With 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. But all this text leading up to that is important to give us context, right? So here we are at 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And we celebrate that. And we're excited about that. 
as well we should be. All this, verse 18, is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen is right. There's so, Paul is so deeply theological in all of his writing, and he's also so deeply practical and pastoral. For Christ's love compels us. 2 Corinthians 5.14, right? 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. So everything we do as Christians needs to be as a response to or as a result of the overwhelming love of God that we've encountered. And so as you leave these, you know, as you leave the service, you'll see above the doors, it says, now go and be the church. Because we gather together to be equipped, to read the word, to be ministered to by his spirit, by, to worship God to fellowship, but to be equipped for the work of God. See, Francis Chan said once, I wonder what the Bible would say to me if everybody didn't tell me what it meant. And so sometimes I think to determine what a Christian is, we, we, we look around and we see what other people think a Christian is. Instead of just looking at the text... Because it would seem to me, and again, you know, Pastor Jamie says this all the time, it's not about perfection, it's about direction. So we're not talking about legalism, we're not talking about having everything lined up perfectly, but also nowhere in Scripture do people claim to be followers of Christ and not actually follow Christ. They mess up. I mean, we, talk, we talked about David's fantastic failures, but they still follow and so Paul, Paul's using a lot of language here. And we're going to ask some questions of this text in the next few weeks. And the first question we're going to ask is, does Christ's love compel us? Because Paul seems to suggest that if you've encountered Jesus, that as a result of that encounter, everything should change. In fact, when you look at Scripture again and again and again, you see people who encounter Jesus and they have a decision to make. Based on that encounter, how now do they want to live? There was a book by Francis Schaeffer, uh, Schaeffer written years back that said, How now shall we live? How now, if you've encountered the radical love of Jesus Christ, will you live? Do you go back to doing what you're always doing? And so we're going to ask some questions of this. And the first one, like I said, is does Christ's love compel us? And then we're going to ask who does Christ's love compel? How does Christ's love compel? Why does Christ's love compel? And what does Christ's love compel us to do? But, you know, we show up, and if, if we're honest, if, if, if I'm honest, I mean, you, you know, I don't want to impose this on you, but if I'm honest and I ask myself that question, I don't know if it's Christ's love that always compels me. 
And I think we do well to examine ourselves and to ask that question. And if it's not, then what is it? What is, what is the, you know, again, what is the source of my ministry of my life? Where, and we talked before, you know, about this idea of being a disciple of Jesus. We talk about the irreducible core of being a disciple was to live centered and sent, right? You said we can't, you can't be a disciple if those two, two things aren't present. And we said to be centered is simply to recognize that our very identity is in Christ, that who I am is because of Christ, and we'll, we'll kind of get into that more. But my identity is in Christ. We keep talking in the, these last few weeks of this word abiding, which you said makes, makes, means make our home in. My identity is in Christ. My comfort is in Christ. He's the source of my strength. He gives me purpose and meaning and value. For Christ's love compels us. Paul says in verse 11, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. I mean, I'll just start right there and ask the question, because Paul seems to say, since we know a fear of the Lord, as a result of that understanding our realization, we try to persuade others. So it would follow that if, if Christ's love isn't compelling us, or if that, this is foreign to us, that maybe we don't fear the Lord. The Bible says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. Fear is, is not just to be afraid of, it is a reverence and awe of God. See, Paul, Paul's entire life and ministry after he encountered Jesus Christ, and Paul wasn't just like, you know, again, we, we, it's so easy in Scripture to sort of, you know, make it a little bit cleaner and, you know, kind of, you know, strip out all the humanity and, 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 you know, clean it up a little bit. But Paul stood by as somebody got stoned to death. And we don't have to go into that, but can you imagine? I mean, you, sadly, there are places in the world where that still happens. But can you imagine being there present and not only not stopping it, but being like, yeah, that's the kind of Paul, guy Paul was. Just so you don't think Paul was kind of a nice guy, he just said, no, Paul was a disaster. Paul was zealous for the worldview he had. Paul was on a mission, like some of us are on a mission to build our own kingdom. Paul was on a mission to do something, and then he encountered Jesus. And again, one of the best apologetics, one of the best defenses for the Christian faith is the life of Paul. How do you explain the remarkable change in Paul's life? He encountered Jesus, and that changed everything for Paul. And so you put Paul in jail, and Paul would go, how am I going to get these people saved? You take Paul, and he goes to Athens, Mars Hill. That's like the Harvard or the Cambridge of the day, right? That is the best of the best, the most elite. And everybody would stand around, and they would speak eloquently, and then everybody would say, oh, you're so brilliant, and, you know, stuff humans do. And Paul shows up, and they got statues, and they're a mess. They don't know what's going on. And Paul very well could be like, you guys are all a mess. Nobody knows what's going on. You're worshiping statues. You're all going to hell. You're evil. He wouldn't have been wrong. I just don't know how effective he would have been. So Paul's method of evangelism is always to take people from what they know or don't know about God and bring them to what they do know. And so Paul is always, I want to be all things to all people that I might win some. 
And I wonder in our conversations if we're so concerned with having the right rebuttal or the right answer, and we're so concerned with being right instead of being righteous and with winning an argument instead of winning a soul. See, I've said before that we're supposed to be fighting for the culture, not against them. And so our, the, the, the way we engage is important. Peter says it like this. Be prepared to give a defense or a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter's saying, live in such a way that people are going to ask you. Because he says, when? So Peter's saying, look, when people come and they ask you, be prepared to give a defense. When they say, why do you have hope in a world where it doesn't make sense to have hope? But then he says, but do so with gentleness and respect. Because oftentimes, as my wife reminds me, it's not just what we say, it's how we say it, right? Sorry, Mom, I'm trying to learn that one. I'm trying, you know. (laughs) Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others, right? And and look at the language he uses in verse 16, because we've been talking about this idea of the heart. It's always the heart. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Paul's going, you can't look at people and make determinations just based on what you see. That's not what God does. And then these are the words that are used. Right after he tells us we're a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come. You know, it's always interesting. When we isolate as humans, when we isolate sections of Scripture and we celebrate them, I'm always interested in the the sections that we celebrate and why, right? And I get it. And so that's very reassuring and comforting. Who doesn't want a new life? But that new life comes with a new obligation, right? That new life comes with a new king on the throne of our heart. To be a follower of Jesus indicates that you have some desire to follow Jesus. And so what Paul seems to say here, right after he tells us about how we're a new creation, is all this is from God, who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Gave us, not the pastors, not the theologians, the Christians. See, it doesn't say it's a suggested ministry. In fact, it says, God was reconciled the world to Christ himself, not counting people's sins against us, and he has committed to us to the the message of reconciliation. It doesn't say he has suggested to us the ministry of reconciliation. See, I get it. I think sometimes we're afraid, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to invite him to church. I'm going to tell him to talk to somebody who knows more than me. Instead of being like, Lord... I'm, I'm nervous. I don't know what to say, what to do like Moses. I'm, you know, I stutter. I don't know. But you know what? It's not about me. It's about you. So Spirit, would you use me? Would you fill me? Would you give me an opportunity? Would you help me to be bold? Because every single person in this room is a missionary. I've said before, there are people in your lives I'm never going to encounter. There are people in your lives, there are things that God has for you to do that only you can do. As Christians, everything we do ought to be as a response to the love of Jesus. Everything. Our mission is clear here. It's to be and make disciples of Jesus, right? That's why we exist. We didn't come up with that. It's the Great Commission. It's what Jesus gave to his disciples after, before his, his ascension, right? What did he say? 
go and make disciples. And I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. Right? That is not a suggestion. It is not the great suggestion. It is the great commission. We've been committed to do that. And so our vision statement is the way we do the mission, right? Our mission is to be and make disciples. Our vision is love God, love people, reach the world. We're going to talk about it more tonight. That is how, that is how we be and make disciples. Love God, simple. It's the first thing. We're talking about Christ's love compels us. Again, first question is, does Christ's love compel me? Have I had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ? I mean, who does Christ's love compel? Who's, what is Paul talking about? Is Paul talking about the authors of the Bible, the Pharisees himself, just pastors? He's talking about all believers, every one of us. And see, a lot of times in life what we do and we lose in this is we choose what's easier instead of what's better. I've said this before, and I haven't thought about this in a while, but, you know, earlier in ministry, I don't know, in the last... I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe, whatever. But I was a computer guy. I mean, that's my background. I'm an IT guy by trade. I still do that. And it's easy. And you get paid a lot of money. And that's an easier life. In fact, when I was going to school for ministry, I remember my son was younger, and I was telling him I was going to, you know, transition to ministry and go back to school. And he's like, oh, you're going to, you know, get a degree, make more money? And I'm like, no, I'm going to make less money. It's like, you know, he's a kid, 16. That doesn't make sense. Like, someday you'll figure it out. Because it's about the call of God in your life. It's about the call of God in your life. His will will never take you to where his grace will not sustain you. You know where I saw that for the first time? I was in Teen Challenge. And we were doing a moving job. You know, you used to be able to hire Teen Challenge to move in. There was an older lady and we went to her house and it was like a needlepoint thing. I was having a tough time. I mean, I was just, I can't do this anymore, you know. And we go in a, in a bedroom, and we're going to move some of the furniture, and I see the needlepoint. It's like the only thing hanging on the wall. And it said, God's grace will never take you. God's will will never take you, rather, to where his grace will not sustain you. It's like, thank you, Jesus, right? See, it's not so much about being happy as it is about being holy. And as we live holy, what we see is that that makes us happy. See, every time Jesus encounters somebody throughout Scripture, every single time in that exchange, he is inviting them into something unfathomably better. It is incomparably better. And we don't believe, we don't trust, we don't understand. See, God saves us from the power of sin and death. And practically speaking, that's what that first part looks like. Saving ourselves from sin really means saving ourselves from ourselves. Self-centeredness. I, I was watching uh, David, the, Daniel's little Riley uh, this past weekend. They're away in Vermont, and I watched Riley for a few hours by myself. Becky and, and the girls were here with youth groups, so that was my emergency. Like, if I don't know what to do, I'm bringing her here, right? But we were hanging out. We had a few hours, and she's the cutest, and I love her. But it, it, like we've said this before. Our default, and you can look at a sweet little kid, our default is always to do the wrong thing. It is always to be selfish. And again, I, I mean, you, you see it. It's just so interesting to me because you see it in kids. And why is the default the wrong thing? Why is it you have to teach kids to do the right thing? You don't have to teach them to do the wrong thing. You don't have to show us to be selfish. I don't have to put any effort into being a self-centered jerk. My wife will, will attest to that, right? But I have to put a lot of effort into not being a self-centered jerk. 
So we are being set free from ourselves, from the bondage of our own choices, from the fact that we don't even know what we need. See, I understand, I understand that the world doesn't understand and doesn't recognize the love of God. And this is whenever I have conversations with people, the thing I always want to get through to them is that God wants you to flourish. He doesn't just want you to do okay. He doesn't just want you to have a decent life. He wants you to have life. John 10.10 says, Jesus came that said, the the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and I come that they may have life and have it to the full, or have it abundantly. That means God created us, and he wants us to thrive. And so he created us in our identity. We are created, every male male and female. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them in the very beginning, Genesis. You were created in the image of God. It's in your very identity to serve and to love and to give and to be relational. That's the heart of God in you. There will never be anybody alive who is not born in the image of God. And he restores us. But he doesn't restore us into our own image. He doesn't just say, oh, Brian, sin tarnished you. I'm going to make you a better Brian. I'm going to fix you as a Brian. No, he says, I'm going to make you like Jesus. People look at you, they're going to recognize Brian. And some of you are like, thank God for that, right? They're not going to recognize Brian. They're just going to see me. John 3.30, right? More of him. Less of us. More of him. Less of us. See, I'm not a pastor for any other reason than God created and called me to be a pastor. And I said this last week, and I'm not, I'm saying it to make this point, and hear me out. Most of my life, I looked around, and I was surrounded by people who had all these talents and abilities. People were athletes, or they were musicians, or they were artists. And so my whole life, I was literally like, I don't got a thing. Like, what's my thing? I'm not an artist. I'm not a, like, you know, you see kids, they watch a YouTube video for like two weeks, they're playing the guitar, whatever. It's crazy, right? I mean, everybody in my family, they all talent, they all have artists. And my whole life, I mean, I'm like, I don't have a thing. Lord, I didn't get, I don't know what happened, but I didn't get anything. I need a gift. Give me something. Why? Why did I say that? Because I was looking at everybody else. I was looking at everybody else to determine what giftings God should give me. And see, God knew before I was born. He knew when he knit me in my mother's womb, I'm going to make, I'm going to give you a heart for people. I'm, you can communicate. You have a memory. Like these certain giftings that as I step back and I say, that is perfectly aligned with being a pastor. And so here's the takeaway from that. There will only ever be one of me. And my wife is very happy. Pastor Jamie's like, thank God for that. There'll never be another one of me. Here's the thing. There will never, ever be in the history of the world another one of you. Ever. God made you fearfully and wonderfully. And do you know how much he loves you? And do you know that if you submit yourself and your life to him, that what he is going to build from it is so much better than what you could build from it? You know, I remember... 
clearly, you know, certain times with the Lord, he just kind of, and you know, sometimes I'll think and I'll be like, if I just look at like me, I'm like, I don't know, but it makes sense that there's a heaven for a guy like me. I mean, if I'm honest, maybe you guys don't think that. I think that a lot. I'm like, I don't know, right? And none of us are worthy of being saved. I know that theologically. But I remember one time when the kids were little, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night, use the bathroom, whatever, and I always go check on them before I go back to bed, you know? And I remember, you know, Amelia was little, and I look, and she's sleeping in her bed. And I just remember just looking and just thinking, like, now it makes sense to me that there's a heaven for her. Just, you know, you see kids sleeping. And then I remember God in that moment saying, don't you know I see the same way? Don't you know that when I look at you with the love of a father, that I love you that way, unconditionally? That I look at you and I want what's best for your life? When I think of the kind of life I want my kids to have, I don't go, I want you guys to have an okay existence. No, man, I want you guys to thrive. I want you to have the best life ever. Everything I do is designed to help you have a good life. And I feel like God is saying that same thing to each one of us. And so before we talk about the the compelling love of Christ, I think it's reasonable that we stop and ask ourselves, does Christ's love compel me? And if it doesn't, I think we stop there and we say, what do I need to do? I think if we recognize for a moment, and, and we keep saying this over and over again, this, this phrase that, you know, I, that the Lord gave all of us, right? We don't surrender to be done. We surrender to begin. And so, much, so many of the times when we are at the end and we're just ready to give up, and the Lord is ready to meet us in that place saying, give up, surrender, give it to me. Psalm 46.10, right? Be still and know that I am God. Cease striving. Somebody in this room needs to hear that right now. Cease striving doesn't mean don't try. It means there is recognize there is a limit to what you can do. But there's no limit to what God can do in you. And there's no limit to what God can do through you. Isaiah 64, 8, let this be our prayer. You, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. As I ask the worship team to come up, I want us to consider that. What would things look like in our lives and in this church if we really said that, Lord, I am the clay and you are the potter. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. You are the apple of his eye. You are the pinnacle of his creation. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It's all right there. For we are God's masterpiece. We are created anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Why don't we stand as we get ready to close with worship this morning?
Lord, we come before you now, and I pray that you would do what we simply can't, that you would bring us gently to the end of ourselves. God, I know there are struggles in this room. I know there are difficulties. I know there are people who are barely hanging on, God. Maybe they barely got here. And God, would you speak to them in ways that we can't, God? Would your spirit penetrate our hearts? Would your spirit soften our hearts, God? Would you do what only you can do here in this place, God? Would you change lives? Would you change eternities, God? Would you continue to work in us that you would be able to work through us? God, give us a heart like Jesus so that like Paul we can say, I want to be all things to all people that I might win some. God, my prayer is that over these coming weeks that each of us can learn what it means and live to be compelled by the love of Christ because that love is the only hope the world has ever known and that love has the power to change everything. In Jesus' name.